Talks with Tertium Quid. Welcome to Tertium Quid Talks, hosted by Tina N., the podcast for parents and families of transgender and non-binary youth. Hi there, everyone. Welcome back to Tertium Quid Talks. In today's episode, we're going to give you some glossary terms, so it can be fairly basic information, but I do want to make sure that everybody listening has a good, firm foundation of the absolute basics of this topic. And language is one of those basics. So the more we understand what we're talking about when we use terms like transgender, non-binary, gender-affirming healthcare, the clearer we are in our communications with other people whether they're allies or maybe not allies. So that's what we're doing in this episode today. So I'm here with Laura Hoge. Am I saying your name right, Hoge? It's Harji, Hogue. Hogue. I'm here with Laura Hogue. Um, Laura, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am a psychotherapist that um, specializes mostly working with folks who identify as transgender or gender diverse in some way. and my practice is in New Jersey, just outside of Montclair. So I think that's important right now because of all that's going on with laws and, you know, the way that um, uh, the world is right now, the United States is right now. Just um, so the way that I practice, I'm, I'm fortunate that I practice in a place where, um, you know, I can talk openly about how affirm, how affirming our, you know, the care is that I provide and that the folks that I work with provide. Wonderful. So I have you here today so we can talk about some of just really the basics of the terminology used when we're talking about transgender issues. A lot of people listening to this, this may be one of the first times they're they're hearing some of these terms or they've come across them out places, but they don't really know what people are talking about. I thought it would be pretty useful for us to define some of these. So parents, guardians, others, we can all understand each other better. Um, one thing one thing I do want to mention, though, is that terminology keeps changing, right? It's a, a lot of this is in flux and in fluid. This is these are the terms that we're using now and the meanings that they they are assigned now. And some of them are also not necessarily fixed in stone in terms of of their definition. So this is a snapshot of this moment in time. They may change. They may become outdated. Um, but just so people who are listening know that this is as of this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Important reminder for sure. Okay. And yeah, we're going to do a little um, upside down interview or episode this time because when we did a thorough interview on all of these glossary terms, and then when I went back to edit it and listen to it, I realized we were talking like two people who are up to their eyebrows in this. And yeah, I um, listened to it too. And <laughs> my, my partner was like, I mean, you sound like you know what you're talking about. I, <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> right. When I listened to it, I felt like if I had come to this cold, yeah, I would have just been screaming. Oh, like, I don't understand anything you're saying, and this isn't helping me at all. So I want to I do the episode in two parts. So first, we're going to re-record a lot of the definitions just as a really quick definition, really super high level, super basic. I feel like at the end of everything you say in this in this part, there's going to be a comma, but mm-hmm. we're not going to go there in this okay. first half. The second half, we'll we'll include the rest of that full inter- the, all the the thorough interview that we did. Um, okay. But w- 
and we can, and anyone who wants to listen to all of that can then go back and listen to all of that as well. But yeah, it just, it was a little overwhelming and I thought, oh no, this isn't, this isn't what I wanted to, to get to here. No, I, I had the same reaction. You're good. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So I'm going to go through a couple of terms. I'm going to give you a term and then I'm going to have you give me a super basic definition for it. Um, I may add or shift some of these. We may have a little conversation around them, but we'll start with the super basics. Okay. okay. Yep. All right. Okay. All right. I'm going to start with the very first one. Um, and actually, as I'm saying this one, I'm not even sure if this is an appropriate term that we should be using, okay. but biological sex, what does that mean? And then you can give me the comma. And is this a term we should be using in this day and age? I mean, to my understanding, it's a fine term. It's typically used, well, I typically see it in medical settings, but what it means is it's it's um, referring to physical characteristics, body parts, right? That make somebody typically a boy or a girl. So having a penis or a vagina. So it's referring to body parts usually. Okay. Yeah. Next term, yeah. gender. So gender is the way people feel inside and ex how they express themselves in their gender. So it's about who we are, who we know ourselves to be in our hearts. Gender and biological sex. Is there a connection between those two, uh, a tied firm connection where these two are connected all the time? So yes, yes. Uh, what we what we learn about gender typically is that our biological sex defines our gender. So there's a link, right? But for some people who identify as transgender, those things are not congruent, but they're associated with one another. So typically somebody whose biological sex is female typically has a vagina. Their gender will most likely be a woman. But for trans folks, this is where uh, the experience is different where their gender is not in alignment with their biological sex. Okay, once it was described to me by someone as, and this is very much a simplification, but I found it kind of useful, was sex is between the legs and gender is between the ears. That's a really good way of putting it. Biological sex is about like when a baby comes out of the, of the person that birthed them, you lift it up and you look at the anatomy and that's how biological sex is sometimes assigned right okay but, so i was yeah. gonna say let's move let's move to that that term right. um assigned male at birth assigned female at birth what what does that mean exactly so what they're referring to is when a baby comes comes into the world and they are looked at by typically a doctor or a parent or a midwife whoever and that person says, oh, it's a boy or up, oh, it's a girl. Their gender is being assigned based on the anatomy in front of that person. Okay. So, so it's like yeah. the classic thing you see in, in the movies, right? They hold up the baby. Congratulations. It's a boy. Right. So that's when right. they're being assigned male at birth. That's all that really right. means. And, right. and for that term, um, I see it shortened AMAB, AFAB. How do you say that if you see it online? Typically, you say AMAB or AFAB, and those are acronyms that mean assigned female at birth or assigned male at birth. Okay, great. Okay, so I'm going to go back again. We were talking about gender. Mm -hmm. What is cisgender? So cisgender refers to someone whose gender identity, right, the gender they feel themselves to be between their ears, as you said, right, matches 
the sex that they were assigned at birth or their biological sex. So the baby comes out, the person says, oh, it's a girl because they see a vagina and that person grows up to feel like they're a woman. That's a cisgender person. Okay. Transgender. Right? What's, right. what's transgender then? Right. So same experience, a person is, a baby is born, the doctor or whoever takes, picks them up and says, oh, it's a girl because they see a vagina. And then that person grows up to feel as though their gender is something different than female. So, so for some people, they identify as trans, like a trans, like a somewhat assigned female at birth grows up to feel like they're a boy. That would be somebody who's transgender. Okay. Right? Right. But sometimes, and I, I don't, I don't want to get this too muddy, muddy the waters too much, but sometimes it's not somebody's assigned male at birth and feels female. Sometimes, sometimes someone feels somewhere in the middle or doesn't identify with gender at all and they okay. fall under. Yeah. Okay. Well, that brings me to another term that I want to ask you about is um, the gender binary. Mm -hmm. Tell me what that is. So that's this idea that there's only two genders, right? And for most of us, that's what we were born learning, that there's boys and there's girls, and that everyone fits in one of those categories. That's a binary uh, experience of gender. Okay, we'll and, and binary is two, right? Binary there's one two. and the other. Correct. So so the gender binary says there's, there's males and there's females. Mm -hmm. So... What about when you're talking about those people that don't feel that they're male or female? They are considered, a term I hear a lot is non-binary. What is non-binary? Non-binary means I don't, like, basically I don't fit into the binary. So when someone's gender identity doesn't fit exclusively into a category of, for example, boy or girl, they might feel like a mix of both. They might feel like they don't associate with gender at all. They might feel like something different altogether. Okay. Now I'm going to circle us back up to the idea of biological sex between the legs. Is there any necessarily correlation between biological sex and where you are on the gender binary? Or are these two kind of separate things? They're, they're two separate things. Let's just leave it at that to simplify right now. <laughs> okay. That's, yeah. that's good. Yeah. I yeah. know. I could hear the comma, but in your <laughs> voice. So I'm like, don't, don't go there yet. Right. Um, okay. Another question that's not really gender related, um, but often gets, you know, swirled up into this with, into this conversation is sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. What is someone's sexual orientation? A sexual orientation refers to the person that you might be romantically attracted to, right? So it's, it's uh, the short term, the short way I've, I've heard this said is, um, you know, sexual orientation is who do you go to bed with and gender identity is who do you go to bed as? <laughs> oh, I like that. That's yeah. good. Okay. And again, I'm going to ask you very basically, is there a, a fixed correlation between your gender identity and your sexual orientation? Those are totally different things. Okay. I'm just going to like, let's leave, leave it at for, to simplify. They're totally different things. Perfect. Good. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, another piece that I want to talk about is, you know, transgender people can go through transitioning. I want you to give me the overall view of what transitioning is, and then we'll go down a little deeper into some of the specifics of it. Okay. So transitioning in its most basic form is a process where a person makes the changes that they need to make 
to show the world the gender that they truly are, right? So it might include things like changing your name, the way you dress, um, how you tell others about who you are, and it sometimes includes medical interventions, but not always. So it's whatever process you go through so that the way you express yourself uh, uh, in the world matches who you feel you are inside. Okay, great. So uh, the other term I hear a lot is social transition. What might be included in a social transition and who might go through a social transition? So if you think of social transition, it basically means it, it's it's what you do to um, make those changes that we just talked about in a, a social setting in your social life, right? So when someone starts to live as their true gender, they might share it with others. So it's relational. It might involve using different pronouns. Um, it might involve changing your name, dressing in a way that matches your gender identity, coming out uh, and what I mean by coming out is basically disclosing who you are to people. Um, it's it's all of those changes that you make that are separate from those that are medical or surgical. Okay. And yeah. who might undergo a social transition? So typically that's all that children will do, right? And, you know, when I say children, like sometimes if a child comes out as transgender and they're in elementary school, there's no medical intervention that's necessary. It's maybe a haircut, maybe changing pronouns. Um, and then also that for some folks, it's transition stops at social transition. You know, for some people, they feel like they are their most true selves without any kind of medical or surgical intervention. Um, but typically, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people talking about how, you know, their surgery is being done on young children. That's never the case. It's it's only social transition. It's usually just a haircut, um, maybe being referred to differently and telling the world who you are. Okay, great. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that was clear for our audience because there is a lot of talk about children having surgeries and it's, you know, living in this world, I know I know that's not true, but mm. I think it's important to make sure that our listeners are very clear on that, that this is not something that your six year old is going to experience. It is literally cosmetic, superficial, visual types of things that, mm -hmm. that your child will be experiencing. Right. Nothing permanent. Okay. Right. So, but now let's move into medical transition. What are some of the things that are, are um, included in a medical transition that may be included? So things that may be included in medical transition could be medications like hormones that will allow somebody's body to change so that it's more congruent with who they feel themselves to be inside, right? And sometimes it includes things like surgeries. Um, so for somebody who is assigned female at birth and identifies as a transgender man, they might undergo something called top surgery, the removal of breast tissue, um, so that's like one of many surgeries, but it's it's all in this effort or in this process of making those changes to feel most um, in alignment with who you feel yourself and know yourself to be and uh, changes that show the world that person as well. Okay, great. So yeah. let's move into the discussion of healthcare. Uh, yeah. I hear a lot of people talking about and fighting against gender affirming healthcare. Broadly, what is gender-affirming health care? That is any medical care that aims to support trans folks in their journey to feel more comfortable with themselves and able to express themselves 
uh, authentically as the gender they know themselves to be. So what might fall under that? Could you give us some examples? Sure. So it could be an endocrinologist or a primary care physician who is trained to provide, prescribe, and monitor hormone therapy. Um, it could be it could be a primary care physician that has an understanding of the the complexities of what it means to live as a transgender person in the world today. Right. So somebody, let me give you an example. So an adult trans man that comes to their primary care provider and that provider knows to ask about cervical health, <laughs> right? So just understanding that the person in front of them um, might need specific care that wouldn't typically be assumed of, of men in general if it's a trans man. I'm not sure if that, I think I might've messed that up and completely. No, that, that makes sense. That makes okay. sense. And, and let me ask you this as well. What about, um, psychological healthcare? Is that, is that covered yes. under gender affirming healthcare? Uh, covered in terms of insurance? No, 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 oh. because we know that's <laughs> not true. But I mean, like in terms of the, the umbrella term, like, yeah. would you consider psychological care healthcare? Yeah, and this is a good, it's a good question to ask because it is really important for folks to see gender specialists and not everybody does have an understanding of what it means for a person to go through a transition. Um, and that can be dangerous because there are some, you know, we as providers, I'm a psychotherapist, I'm a gender specialist, like I have to know a little bit about what all of these processes involve so that I can best support my clients and best prepare them for what they're going to encounter, whether that be their first trip to an endocrinologist or their, um, you know, what questions to ask their surgeon. It's also my responsibility to provide a letter of clearance. And what that involves, like the, according to the standards of care that I follow from our governing bodies that are specialists in gender care, um, I I have to follow specific guidelines to ensure that the person that I'm working with knows what they're getting themselves into, right? Is informed about the process that they're embarking upon, the possible risks, the possible outcomes, and to make sure that they're choosing um, interventions that are in alignment with their goals and that they're choosing the most conservative ones for them. Like there are ways for people to reach their goals potentially without having to go through drastic measures. So we try to, um, we try to, to try those, we try those interventions first, you know, um, to make sure we're not going through drastic measures that are unnecessary. Right. And, yeah. um, what about, uh, you know, a psychologist that's telling them they're not trans, this is incorrect, they should pray. Is this gender affirming healthcare? No, that would be, that would be um, a call to the licensing board. <laughs> like that's, that would be grossly unethical. I mean, it's not my job to tell somebody to, to sort of figure out if someone's really trans or not really trans, right? It's my job to help somebody understand themselves understand who they are, make decisions for themselves that are informed, that are well thought out, right? Um, I certainly will do assessments, but the standards of care that I follow are more about informed consent um, than anything else. I'm not, when someone comes through the door and says I'm trans, I'm not giving them a side eye and saying, really, are you sure? Like, that's not my job at all. I want to understand how they came to know this about themselves. I want to understand, um, 
what they're hoping to get from any transition related steps that they're taking. And then along the way, I'm partnering with them to sort of assess each step along the way to see how they feel and 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 also to explore what does it mean to feel authentic, right? How do you know if this is the right step for you? What's proof for you? What's your metric, right? How are you measuring these things? So I partner with them in that kind of care, but somebody, you know, there there is a there is a contingent of folks that are practicing mental health related care for trans individuals that are following some really um, you know, I'm giving air quotes, pseudoscience that is, that, that does put some skepticism into the mix and, and, and it's, it's dangerous in my opinion. That's not what gender affirming care is. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. And one last question, um, gender affirming surgery, right? How is that different than gender affirming healthcare and what are some gender affirming surgeries? And um, also, more importantly, when might people be considered to to be, you know, when, when might people be having these right. since it's not children? Right. Gender affirming surgery. I mean, the way that I see it is that it's part of the un, un, a part of gender affirming healthcare. It's one sort of branch of it. There's lots of different ways that healthcare professionals can show up to support trans folks. And that's one of them as a gender affirming surgeon. And so gender affirming surgery are operations, there's a number of them that can help change a person's body so that it's more in alignment with their gender identity. So this could be on the chest, it could be on the genitals, it could be, um, you know, vocal cord surgery. It's done to help folks feel more like themselves and to lessen any discomfort they may have. So um, gender dysphoria is this is the discomfort and the distress that comes from feeling out of alignment with who you know yourself to be. Um, and so gender affirming surgeries are performed to, as a medically necessary, often intervention to, uh, address gender dysphoria, which that's what's leads to a lot of mental health complications with trans folks, depression, anxiety, um, any, all sorts of distress. Okay, great. Well, thank yeah. you. And we're going to have the rest of our much more in-depth interview following this short introduction. So if you want to listen to the rest of it and really where we really go into the weeds, please carry on listening. You did ask about when surgeries are performed. Oh, yes. I don't know if you want me to. The, yeah. the, what I will say is there there are some times when surgeries are performed under the age of 18, but in those cases, it's because it's typically because the young person is in such distress that it would be more risky to not do it, right? So they might be experiencing suicidality. They might be experiencing extreme depression due to the dysphoria of what's going on with their bodies, right? And that is done with very careful care and concern, including surgeons, psychologists, parents, right? It's a very, very well thought out process. Typically, that's not done until the age of consent, 17 or 18. Friggin' Fabulous Productions produces killer commercials, web promos, on-hold phone messages, voiceover demos, and more. Visit FriggenFabulousProductions.com for more details. Okay, well, welcome back. Now we're going to move into our more in-depth interview where absolutely everything we talk about has an it depends attached to it. Because basically nothing is really clean and cut and dried. Nothing can really be boiled down to a seven-word definition like we tried to do in the first half. There's a lot of nuance in this topic. And in this second part, which we actually recorded first, 
we will go in depth into a lot of those nuances. But here we go in deep. And I hope you listen to it. It's very interesting. But if you're not ready for it, or if you're like, nope, I'm good, I got enough, feel free to turn off here. And we'll see you at our next episode. But for those of you who are staying, enjoy. So let's start with just a real broad one. Can you define transgender? Right. So when we talk about trans, the word transgender, that that t- that is more of an umbrella term, right? And it's sort of um, encompasses a lot of different identities, um, a lot of different transgender identities, which I'm sure we'll get into more. But it's it's in its most basic definition, it basically means that a person's felt sense of who they are in the context of gender is different than the sex they were assigned at birth, right? So their biological, physical anatomy, essentially. I mean, so when we say sex assigned at birth, that's not always clear um, for everybody, but the way that we as a culture assign sex at birth is usually through physical um, markers, gender anatomy. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And you actually used a couple of terms in there that we will go on to define. I feel um, one thing I wanted to, we were talking about earlier, and I do want to say is a lot of things that we talk about here, we'll use other terms, and then we have to go on and define those terms as well. So so, (laughs) it's like we're learning a whole new language here. Right. Um, So let's start with, I think, I, I think maybe super basic terms. You know, when we fill out forms at the doctors, different places, we see we see gender and we see sex on the forms. Mm-hmm. Are they the same? Are they different? What are they? So for some people, they're the same, right? So for somebody, I'm going to use another term called cisgender, right? So for somebody whose felt sense of who they are is congruent with the sex that they were assigned at birth, um, then they're the same, right? But when somebody's felt sense of who they are is different from their sex assigned at birth and maybe even their, uh, what their documents say, those things can be different. Okay. Well, let's back it up a little bit because <laughs> so, so, I feel like we're already getting into the weeds and, and just tell me what is sex? Not the dirty one, but you know, <laughs> what does sex mean on a form when they say, or, or what are, what are people referring to when they, when they, when you say, what is your sex or your biological sex? Okay. So for the general population, Sex is typically when somebody sees biological sex, they're thinking male, female, right? They're thinking in a binary. Um, that's not always the case for everybody. So when you say what is sex, it's kind of a complicated answer. So for some people, it's male. For some people, it's female. And that's because of their genitalia, right? Or their uh, chromosomes. Uh, for some people, genitalia is ambiguous or there's a lot more manifestations uh, like or a lot more... Um, chromosomal uh, expressions than we typically are taught in school. And so for some people, sex can be something different than male or female, a word we call intersex, which is a whole other term that we will define, (laughs) right? But sex tends to be more the biological side of things. Sex tends to be more the biological. Gender is more the felt sense of who a person is. But those things get conflated, right? Because we don't have this really robust education that everybody receives that differentiates those things. So sometimes when people see biological sex, they might think gender, but in reality, those things are, are different. One is a felt sense of who you are. One is uh, more physiological, biological. Okay. That's helpful. So theoretically you could have one, one, 
for one thing you're filling out for sex and a different thing for gender theoretically yeah well they're always different but for some people they're congruent and for some people they're not okay yeah okay so one thing you did mention was the binary let's talk a little bit before we get too deep in the weeds about the gender binary we talked about male and female so binary discuss Right. I mean, I think that as humans, we like to categorize things neatly. And unfortunately, when it comes to gender and biological sex, you know, what we know scientifically is it's not so it's not so simple. But in terms of the way that our culture has defined gender, we've set these norms and expectations about what is considered an acceptable sort of a box to check, right? And so we have in many places in our country now more than ever, we have two options. And so there's this gender binary and typically people fall into one or the other. I mean, most people do, Um, but that can be really tricky when somebody doesn't because it, it brings up a sense of, uh, discomfort. There's, there's a questions about belonging. There's questions about, Uh, There's an internalization of stigma, right? Because we don't have a fully accepting culture for people who live outside of that binary and who express themselves outside of that binary. Okay, so let's talk now about gender identity. Mm -hmm. I guess this is this comes into play with the with the gender binary. But what is someone's gender identity? Gender, so I do want to preface all this by saying, like, this is still an emerging science, right? Um, But there is, you know, in my work as a psychotherapist, I I work a lot with, like, felt sense of who you are, right? Felt sense of authenticity, you know, the process of self-actualizing in the most authentic way possible. But there's also this biological understanding um, of transgender identity that's an ongoing area of research. And we know that gender identity is deeply rooted in our brain. And it's believed that we come to an understanding of ourselves during development. It's a combination of genetics, hormones, other factors that influence how our brain sort of perceives and identifies with gender. Um, we have some research that shows that there's a differences in brain structure and function with trans- between transgender individuals and, and cisgender individuals, people whose identity matches their assigned sex at birth. And these differences do suggest that trans individuals may have brain characteristics that are that are more similar to people um, to their identified gender than to their identified sex, right? Or their assigned sex. I'm hoping this makes sense, right? So, so what what all this is to say that transgender identity is a deeply rooted felt sense of who a person is in the context of gender, and we do have the this emerging science that shows that there is um, a biological reason for that. Okay, and pulling back even further from that, does everybody have a gender identity or is that just something that trans people would have? Everybody has a gender identity, but for cisgender people, for people who, who fit into quote unquote norms um, or, you know, societal norms that are constructed by society, right? Not that they are more normal than um, another way of being, but for people who are cisgender, they don't think about it. They don't have to think about it. Right. So some people will say, I don't even think about gender identity. I don't even think that's a thing. And that's because they've never had to. Right. Okay. Right. Right. So, so a lot of these things we're talking about, everybody has this, everybody mm-hmm. can select something. It's just, we're talking about it more with trans people because this is, they, like you said, they're thinking about it. They have to think about it, whereas yeah. others don't. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is creating all these resources for parents 
to under to be more gender literate, right? <laughs> because it's it's a new um, it's a new uh, sort of area of focus that they have, and it's effortful to and in it's an intentional process to start to reflect back on their own understanding of their own gender and how they came to understand themselves for who they are, because it's it's such a normal process that you know for most people who aren't trans they they aren't aware of how they came to know what their you know know how they made the decision to express themselves a certain way but if we think back i mean i think back to when i was a kid like there was a lot of policing when it came to my gender expression you know i grew up in a time where I mean, I remember my parents, like they would only let me wear jeans once a week, you know, to school, but my brothers could wear them, you know, whenever they wanted to. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's all these experiences that we have that were that we just didn't characterize as part of how we evolved into expressing ourselves a certain way and identifying a certain way. Uh, but for, for transgender people like that is a lot more present in their consciousness and awareness um, throughout their childhood, if they come to know themselves as trans as a child or through adulthood, um, because it has to be, it has to be front of mind for safety reasons, uh, mm -hmm. most of all, right? All right, I wanna move to another another term. Sure. Going Kind of going back to the beginning where we talked about gender and sex. Mm -hmm. Now, sex is a, is a, you know, it has multiple meanings, right? Like a lot of, some people think of it as male and female, but then it also has your sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. What is sexual orientation exactly? Because a lot of people will conflate gender and sexual orientation or gender and sex. So let's just parse it all out. Right. So gender identity is a felt sense of who you are. Your sexual orientation is essentially who you're attracted to. <laughs> so it's a totally different thing. Uh, I think that they can sometimes get mixed together because uh, trans folks um, and uh, gay, lesbian, you know, people who identify outside of the, um, as a sexual minority, right? They, we tend to group together in our advocacy um, and we tend to live outside of social constructs or social quote unquote, I'm, I'm giving air quotes, you can't see me, but uh, norms. <laughs> um, I could hear them. <laughs> you can hear them. So, um, yeah, so sexual orientation is about your relationship with other people. Gender identity is your relationship with yourself. Excellent. I like that description a lot. That's good. So, and then in terms of um, sexual orientation and gender identity, uh, is there any correlation between those two things? Like if you have one gender identity, do you, are you then aligned with a specific sexual orientation? No. Okay, there was another term you used that I want us to talk about is gender expression. Yeah, so this is really important because, so when you think of gender expression, it's sort of like the performance of gender or the way that gender, um, so think like haircuts, the way people dress, um, the way people act, right? In terms of gender roles um, that are typically assigned feminine or masculine. Um, that is not the same as a felt sense of who a person is. So what this means is somebody could identify uh, their gender identity could be a, a woman or feminine and they could be expressing themselves in a masculine way. Right. And vice versa. Right. And gender expression. Um, I, I'm going to ask a very leading question. Yeah. Is that something that's created by society and societal norms? 
the, the, the stereotypical expressions of femininity, masculinity. Right. So those are all social constructs. Yeah. But essentially for like, just for a basic de definition, it's, it's, an, it's the way somebody expresses or communicates their felt, their felt sense of who they are through things like clothing, mannerisms, outward appearance. Yeah. Things like that. And this is important because it's, you know, it's sort of, um, it reinforces the idea that we can never assume somebody's identity based on what we're looking at or what we're seeing. Right, which leads me to my next term, which is gender attribution. Right, so gender attribution is essentially this, this guess that people in society make of someone's gender based on the way they express themselves, their appearance or their behavior. Right, now how, how in, do you go through the world without making those assumptions? Well, I mean, I, I don't think we can sort of police our first thought of things. You know what I mean? I think that we all are going to, you know, you, we're sort of wired to be making inferences because otherwise we'd have to figure out way too much information all the time. You know, we can't always wonder why what's going to happen when there's clouds in the sky. Right. We have there's a part of us that just kind of grabs an umbrella, <laughs> you know. And so I think that that that's going to also happen with gender. But what what's important for us to start doing is to start to um, to approach the second, the thought that comes after that differently with more intention, right? And so the first thought might be, okay, I think I'm, you know, I'm looking at, if I'm seeing somebody wearing a suit and a tie, I'm, you know, okay, that, that to me is masculine. I associate that with the masculine. But my second thought has to be, okay, but I can't know for sure, right? And that gives us an opportunity to, to approach one another with a little bit more curiosity, a little bit more understanding that um, some folks might feel something different inside than what we assume they might be feeling based on what we're seeing. Got it. And I feel like that makes comes into play more with people who we actually have, you know, some sort of a relationship with, not mm -hmm. so much the cashier at Walmart, right? We, I mean, we want to be respectful to them, but we don't have to approach them with as quite as much. Um... Right. No, no, no. Yeah, no. So there's something called the cisgender stare. I'm quoting again in my with my fingers. <laughs> um, right. We want to be really careful. Like it's not it, it's not our right to understand what's going on with everybody in the world all the time. Like this information can be deeply personal. Um, I think you're right. But when it with its people, when it's people that we're close with or that we're interacting with, um, maybe curiosity isn't the right word, humility is the right word, is to, to be humble enough to know that we don't know somebody better than they know themselves. And we can't know that unless that information is disclosed to us with consent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I didn't mean like, we're. I, I guess I was thinking of it like anyone, not necessarily that somebody looks trans or looks different. I was just picturing going through the world with everyone because we definitely default to assuming people are cisgender mm -hmm. and that they are, um, you know, that they their gender is as they present. So it tends to be that we default to only considering it when people look different. I'm using the air quotes now. That's right. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> right. That's right. And I can right. tell you firsthand as somebody who works with 80 percent of my clients are trans you never know. <laughs> you really never know. I mean, people sometimes come through the doors and to work with me and, you know, it's not like, um, yeah, I think that the world wants us to think that all trans folks are, it's obvious and it's, it's really not. There are people walking around for all sorts of reasons that feel very different on the inside than what they're presenting externally. 
Right, right. Okay, we're going to pull back again now to use some other terms. Um, you used uh, you used the term um, assigned gender at birth. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so assigned gender at birth, again, is sort of the gender that is attributed to a baby when they're born, um, based usually on external genitalia. And so when we're talking about um, the biological sex of transgender folks, typically we refer to that as either they're assigned male at birth or they're assigned female at birth um, or intersex, right? There is also, for some folks who are, who are born with some ambiguity, um, there is a third biological sex that we refer to usually as, a, as intersex. If my child is transgender, what you're saying, does that mean that they are intersex? That's what's making them transgender? No, not at all. No. Intersex folks um, are are born with physical or biological traits that don't typically fit into the definitions of male or female. Um, and so there's a shared experience of gender diversity that intersex folks have with transgender folks. Transgender folks, what we're talking about is biological sex and felt sense of who you are not being in alignment. It's a different, it's a different experience. I think where the two get conflated and can sometimes be confusing is that we do know that there's all sorts of variations of chromosomes. We also, we used to believe there was only two XX and XY, but we know that there's a variety now. Um, but that doesn't mean that everybody who identifies as transgender has some sort of, um, like a chromosomal combination that's not XX or XY. Those that doesn't necessarily mean that thing. And I think we get into really dangerous territory when we assume it has to be that way because we're looking for um, a reason to believe our children when them telling us who we are is enough reason to believe them. Right. We don't need to have a biological marker or some, some no. chromosomal reason that makes this okay or believable. They just feel this way. We don't know yet why this might be happening, right? No, we, and we, I mean, the hypothesis is that there's two different processes in development. One being the whatever process um, manifests as a biological sex characteristic, right? A penis or a vagina or ovaries, testes. And one that, that um, manifests as our understanding of who we are. And sometimes those things are in alignment and sometimes they're not. And we do have emerging science that supports that that to be that to be true, but I think if we need that science in order to believe people, we're entering really dangerous territory of gatekeeping healthcare, gatekeeping parental affirmation, you know, gatekeeping societal acceptance, and so it's a really it's a it's a black hole to enter. You don't want to go in that direction. <laughs> right, right. I don't know if you know the um, children's book by Mo Williams, Edwina. I don't. Oh, well, there's it's it's about this dinosaur and this kid that can't stand her because he's like, she's extinct and shouldn't be here and shouldn't be so freaking popular. Wow. And then finally, at the end of the book, he like she listens to his whole presentation about why she's extinct. And she's like, oh, my God, you're right. And then she's just like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and then they go off and be friends. And I kind of feel like it's the same thing. Like you ha you don't need all this back up behind it. Like he was so tied up in knots over this and he could have just been having chocolate chip cookies with Edwina the whole time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that, 
Yeah, I think that, look, for parents, it can be like a bomb dropping when their child comes out in terms of like, what do I do? How do I support? Is this really happening? What does this mean? Like, there's lots of questions. And as uncomfortable as it is to sit in the questions and try and get a sense of comfort with the unknown, that's a way better way to approach this than, and just love your kid and protect the relationship at all costs. It's a way better way to approach this than to try to figure everything out because you're just going to get tied up in knots and could potentially yeah. harm the relationship with your child. Yeah, I think making sure your kid is happy and healthy, maintaining that relationship is key, and living with uncertainty is just a huge part of it. I feel like it's a big part of parenting in general, but mm -hmm. when you have a kid come out, it sort of smacks you in the face like a wet fish, and you're like, ah, okay, I'm going to really live with uncertainty now. Like. Yeah. It just yep. did it in a much deeper way. And you just have to be there with them and help them. Yeah. Or, you know, and I think in our effort to sometimes be protective of kids, it's sort of like, okay, but if I can contain this, I can keep them safe. But then you become the very harm you're trying to protect them from. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, a, it's gonna, it's a counterintuitive journey oftentimes for parents. Um, but it's really, really important to get that one down. Okay. And then you'll see those um, assigned male at birth, assigned female at birth as AMAB, AFAB, if you yeah, see so it. Typically they're, yeah, they're shorthand. And sometimes people will say AMAB or AFAB. Mm -hmm. Right. Just so if people are listening and they're like, oh, I've seen that. That's what, that, that's what they're talking about there. Um, what is cisgender? That's another term you used earlier. Right. So cisgender is when a person who's a person's assigned sex at birth is congruent with their gender identity. So I would identify as a cisgender person. The sex that I was assigned at birth, I was assigned female at birth. I also identify as a woman. Okay. And we talked a bit about what transgender means. Mm -hmm. Can you talk specifically about some of the terms people might hear around that, like trans man, trans woman, trans masculine, trans femme? Right. So some people don't feel like they fit really, again, in the binary, even as a transgender person, right? Not all uh, trans folks, for example, who are assigned male at birth come to identify as a trans woman. Some identify somewhere in the middle, right? So maybe, so some words that are used to, uh, some identifiers would include gender queer, um, gender fluid, non-binary. Some people will call themselves transmasculine. So their, their sex assigned at birth is not congruent with their gender identity, but they don't necessarily feel like they are a trans man. They are sort of more, they are on the more masculine sort of side of things, for lack of a better way of saying that. Okay. So what a trans man, mm -hmm. what define that? So I do want to just give a disclaimer. I hesitate yeah. to define that. So some people define that differently than others. Okay. Right? Okay. But generally speaking, what that typically, what I, what that typically means uh, is that somebody would really see themselves in, kind of in the gender binary, so to speak, but assigned, likely assigned female or not assigned male at birth. And now they identify, now as, identify male. as man. Yes. Okay. And a trans woman, again, yeah. typically is a similar sort of approach. Correct. Yeah. On, on the other way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And then you talked a bit about non-binary um, and some of the, the categories under there. Can you go a little deeper with that? And because non-binary can feel very confusing to a lot of, a lot of parents. So what does that mean? And 
I guess even if you could, even a little more specifically, what does that mean for a child's puberty? Mm, yeah. So for somebody who identifies as non-binary, that's that's a, a term that's used to describe folks who don't identify exclusively as man or as a man or woman, as male or female. So I think, uh, yeah, I'm hesitating because there's so many different ways that people identify in that category, right? So you can be uh, somebody who doesn't really feel like they connect with gender at all. So somewhat agender, that's the term used for that. You can be uh, gender fluid, sometimes feeling more like more masculine, sometimes feeling more feminine. Um, gender queer is another word. So queer is one of those words when you had given that disclaimer early in the in the podcast about how words change queer when you're using the word queer around folks um that were around during you know like stonewall like that was a slur so just be you know something to be mindful of when you use that word but it's also been reclaimed by lgbtq folks in a lot of ways to be you know an empowering term um so there are certainly folks that identify as gender queer which means you know just not quite in that binary and and that could mean any number of things based on the lived experience of the person that identifies that way so for, you asked a good question so for for youth who identify as non-binary going through puberty that could mean a number of things so some folks um will want to go through some sort of medical transition for some, and and that really will depend on what it feels like to be in uh, the body that somebody was born in. Um, and if there's any kind of, I mean, I'm hesitating because there's another term I'm going to use, which is gender dysphoria. If a person has a sense of distress related to their body being incongruent with how they most authentically feel inside. Okay, so if somebody is feeling like, for example, um, they were assigned female at birth and puberty would create uh, breast tissue that would be incongruent with their felt sense of who they are, then that child might go on um, medication to block uh, puberty development. Um, but some folks don't have that experience. And so the presence of breast tissue wouldn't be causing distress. So it really depends on what the child needs at that time. And it's really important for children to be working closely with uh, a knowledgeable professional, either a primary care physician that specializes in gender care or an endocrinologist or somebody that can really have those those conversations with a child um, to navigate the best way forward towards authentically expressing themselves in their body um, and maintaining, you know, appropriate mental health care during that time. Okay, good. And we're going to talk about a lot of those terms as well going forward. Um, but one I did want to talk about right now is gender dysphoria. What yeah. is gender dysphoria? So gender dysphoria is uh, the distress that a person feels when their gender identity doesn't match the sex they were assigned at birth and, you know, the body that they're in. Oh, right. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I, I wasn't I wasn't trying to, like, push you in anywhere. I just I wasn't clear. And I, I want our audience to to have some understanding of this with, you know, if someone uses this term, I want them to understand what, what we're talking about. Yeah, I, mean, um, I think they, they, this shared experience is really about the challenges about self-identification, right? A lot of them might experience gender dysphoria. Some of them often um, go through, undergo medical interventions to align their bodies with their identities. Um, but also, 
not quite the same. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. And then I have this on here. Um, if you can answer it, I not knowing that you're not a medical doctor, what is the sex phenotype and genotype going back to that biological sex end of things? Yeah, no, sure. So genotype refers to a genetic makeup, chromosomal composition that essentially determines somebody's individual sex. So typically you'll see two main sex chromosomes that um, are involved here, X and Y. And so if you have XX, you're typically assigned female, XY, you're typically assigned male. Um, but it's important to know that not all individuals fit into that binary, right? We have a lot of variations of sex chromosomes that um, that some folks who are making really unjust laws don't want to acknowledge, but there's a lot more variations in chromosomes than we typically uh, acknowledge. Um, so phenotype, on the other hand, refers to physical characteristics, traits that are observed. So external genitalia, reproductive organs, sex characteristics like uh, breast development or um, like facial hair um, and hormones. So one has to do with chromosomes. The other is sort of the observed traits that manifest from those chromosomes, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah. it does. And on the genotype, we don't typically know what our genotype is, right? We're not getting this back no. from a from a from you know the lab when we give blood or something. So no. we could many of us could have variations. That's correct. Absolutely. Okay. All right. We're going to move now into some specifics around transitioning for children um, or anyone actually, but sure. I I tend to have the the lens of children in my mind. We talked about gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the flip side, gender euphoria. Right. So gender euphoria is the experience um, that a transgender person might have when they actually feel like they are in congruence with their gender identity. So it's a positive feeling. Um, I'm trying to give you some examples because it's actually I've I've witnessed moments of gender euphoria and it's actually quite beautiful. You know, so for example, if somebody has just come out and they get their first haircut and they look in the mirror and they see the person that they feel like they are inside, it's a moment, I mean, it it's so moving to see. Um and for trans folks, it really um often provides a psychological foothold to get through more difficult times is mo these moments of euphoria. I've seen them too, and it is overwhelmingly wonderful. It's, it's, that's, a, that's the right word. It is overwhelmingly moving. Yeah. 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 So let's talk now about transitioning. Let's talk about it broadly as a concept, and then we'll dig into the different parts of transitioning, like social transition and medical transition. But mm -hmm. first, transitioning, what is that exactly? So transitioning is the process. So here's how I define it in my practice, right? So when somebody comes to me and asks about transition, what I talk to them about is this process of getting to know oneself to starting to track what it feels like to be in the word I use is resonance with their authenticity. And that can take some time. And sometimes it involves changing things socially. And what I mean by that is maybe changing your presentation or the way you express yourself. 
things like clothing, hairstyle. Um, sometimes it involves medical interventions. Sometimes it involves name changes. Some, I mean, it, it can involve any number of things for any number of people, but it is the process of self-actualization that folks go through so that they become more authentic to themselves in the context of gender. Okay, so what I'm hearing is there's no set path of transitioning. It's a very unique personal type of experience right. and you you do what's right for you. Correct. Yep. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about social transition. What are some of the things that happen for someone in a when they are socially transitioning? And and if you could in terms of children, give us an idea of um maybe ages that this could happen or so so families get a sense of what might be a path when they might do something when they might not do something so when a young child comes out typically what happens is they will go through social transition only if that right so that involves maybe a haircut maybe changing the way they they're dressing maybe um maybe changing a pronoun uh maybe using a different name, but nothing medical is typically done before the age of puberty. Um, so we're talking little kids, like five, six, seven, um, maybe even younger, but it's, it's nothing medical, nothing irreversible. Nobody's being experimented upon, like these scary stories that are coming out of different states that I won't mention, but, um, but there's really nothing irreversible happening at all. So really what we're talking about with young kids is social transition. And I do want to say there are adults who when they transition, it's social transition. It's no more than that. Um, that's everybody's different. So that would be, you know, when, when talking about kids, really what we're talking about is social transition. Okay. And then a uh, medical transition. What, what does that look like? What, what are the components of that? What are ages or stages of life where things like that might occur? Right. So medical transition, now you're talking about interventions that might alter a person's physical characteristics or maybe stop them from expressing themselves. Right. So around the uh, the second stage of, two, of puberty, which is called Tanner stage two of puberty, it's typically when, um, you know, just about a year or so, maybe I could be, I want to double check that. But it's a little bit before uh, like a, a, a person assigned female at birth would begin to menstruate. Um that point, if uh, if there's a lot of distress around the prospect of going through natal puberty, right, the puberty that would be congruent with how you are assigned at birth, some endocrinologists or gender specialists would suggest that a child go on something called a puberty blocker. And what the puberty blocker does is it stops those hormones from expressing themselves so that a, a child doesn't go through puberty and they're given a little bit more time to figure out how they want to authentically express their gender. Um, and puberty blockers are safe. They've been used in a condition called precocious puberty for a very, very long time. So precocious puberty is when kids go through puberty at like five, like you don't want that happening. <laughs> so um, typically there's medication given to just stave off puberty until that child can go through with their peers in a more typical fashion. So these are the same drugs that are typically used for transgender uh, kids so that they have a little bit more time before they're doing anything irreversible and they, it allows them to figure things out without the distress of having to go through a puberty that is not in alignment with who they feel they are inside. So that's medical transition for 
young ones, it starts with puberty blockers. Then around, if, if somebody persists in their identity, um, they know who they want to be, then there's a conversation with the doctor around how to align their body with their felt sense of who they are. Uh, and that could include something like hormones, um, testosterone or estrogen, um, to induce the secondary sex characteristics of the desired gender as opposed to the natal sex assigned at birth. Um, so that would mean that for somebody who's who's assigned male at birth but feels deeply like they are a fem or a woman inside, they would likely be prescribed hormones so that they can their body becomes aligned with a female gender as opposed to the one they were assigned at birth, and vice versa. Now, for people who are non-binary, then it's a again a little bit more nuanced of a conversation about you know what what uh, would be the most authentic exp physical expression of your gender identity. And then uh, a gender specialist would work with that child to toward that end. Okay. And when you say this, that it will align their body, mm -hmm. it, it will for a, someone taking female hormones, they will develop breasts, but they will not develop a vagina, correct? That's correct. So then we then there's a, a conversation about surgical transition. Um, and so that typically I mean, and so everything that I'm giving you, by the way, is based on the World Professional Association standards for transgender healthcare. Um, and if you are looking for a provider, my suggestion is that you find somebody that is aligned with those standards of care. It's called the WPATH standards of care. And if I can give you um, a link to their standards of care if you want, and you can share with your your listeners. But um, so while hormones might happen more towards 14, 15, usually at the earliest, surgeries typically don't happen until 17, 18. And that's for a lot of reasons. So some of the gender affirming surgeries for best results, you might need to be on hormones for a little while if you're unless you're non-binary and you don't want to be on hormones. But for best outcomes, oftentimes folks need to be on other gender affirm or engage in other gender affirming protocols for there to be the best outcomes. Uh, but surgeries typically aren't done until around 18. There are some times when they're done a little bit earlier if the dysphoria is so great that it's leading to mental health complications and it's just really difficult for that child's mental health and the parents are on board. So sometimes it is done earlier, but um, you typically won't be undergoing any kind of surgeries until the age of adulthood um, in most cases. Um, yeah. So I hope that answers your question. That did. I just wanted to make sure it was clear for people who, um, you know, might not be as familiar with this and just make sure we're actually putting things out there clearly so everyone understands what the steps are and what happens. Um, you use the term gender affirming healthcare. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what that means and, and the, the mindset behind that. Right. I mean, so gender affirming healthcare, what that means to me, I can say, is is that the practitioner that you're engaged with is knowledgeable of the unique needs of trans folks and their families and also understands the standards of care that are most evidence-based and most well-researched, which, in my opinion, is the WPATH standards of care. Um, everybody has unique needs, and so WPATH does their best to make sure that the standards are, that they recommend are generalizable enough to be um, to be to be individualized to people's care. Um, but they're you know they're based on the research that we have to date, as opposed to 
you know, some of like the more, I'm going to call it pseudoscience that's out there. That's really um, coming from people that have different motivations and agendas. Okay. Um, one thing, other thing I wanted to ask about was the term detransition, which comes up a lot in that, in the pseudoscience as a reason to fight against gender affirming healthcare. But, um, you know, it, it is something that can happen. So yeah, what it, is that exactly? And just tell us a little bit about that. So detransition um, is when a person who has transitioned and, and in any number of ways, then goes through the process of realizing that that isn't their most authentic self. And then they sometimes will refer, return back to um, a gender that's congruent with their assigned sex at birth, usually in most cases of detransition. You know, the, the sad thing is that detransition is a really important conversation that we have to have with all folks that we were, I'm talking about me, like therapists that we have to work with. I mean, that's part of obtaining informed consent is, is uh, having a conversation about the potential that somebody might evolve into a different understanding of themselves. And that's important to consider, especially when you're undergoing interventions that are permanent. Um, and but unfortunately, it's been weaponized so much that it's become, you know, a fraught conversation because I think to bring it up and I usually have to preface this with my clients, it's like I'm, this is something I'd bring up with everybody. It's part of informed consent. I'm not trying to tell you you're doing anything wrong. Right. But because of how it's been used, it's become a really difficult conversation, which is unfortunate. Um, what I can say is that the research that we have, again, emerging still, but the research we have is that um uh, rates of regret and detransition uh, seem to be very low, between one and two point five percent, and post transition, post medical intervention and surgical intervention. And so, you know, it does happen. And for those who it happens too, it's profoundly painful. And so, I think that that's important to have a conversation about. And also, it's really painful to deny care. And you know, we know that by providing gender affirming care, by allowing for uh, a child or an adult to um, have access to hormones or to have access to these surgeries, it really mitigates mental health complications like depression and anxiety and suicide risk in children. And so, you know, while detransition is always uh, a possibility, you know, it, it it's infinitely less, um, it happens infinitely less than, than mental, really scary mental health issues. Um, do in the absence of care. I agree that it's a really important topic, and I think we should talk about it, especially parents. Parents are very concerned, right? We don't yes. approach this lightly. Mm -hmm. um, and we're very scared that we're going to make help our child make the wrong decision. Yep. And so I think we want we want to hear about this. We want to talk about it, and we want to learn about people who do transition and understand why. Mm -hmm. I know anecdotally, I've spoken with people and what I've heard from people was it was just really hard being yeah. transgender. So they yeah. were like, it was easier. And then some of them have gone back. And then I have no other people who they were like, I'm actually more non-binary, right? They may have transitioned to the opposite gender and now they're pulling back into a different. Right. So that would be like a retransition, right? Right. We don't even have a term for that one yet. Right. So, but, um, yeah, I think as a parent, you really have to weigh up what does your child need now and give them the support they need to. Exactly. 
Yeah, sorry, I cut you off. I didn't. No, it's okay. That's okay. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I think what I was, what, what you're making me think about is, you know, when, when parents ask me how to best approach being affirming, you know, it's really, it's not just about, you know, um, championing a person's emerging identity, whatever that might be. It's about being open to and expressing a desire for your child actualizing exactly as they need to, right? And so for some kids, that might mean a real, like a, a deep exploration of gender um, that, res that ends in uh, them being cisgender. That's good too, right? Like, so right. You know, you're, not, you're not being unaffirming by allowing for somebody to actualize without any kind of investment. Or you're, you're, you are being affirming by by allowing for someone to actualize without any kind of investment. And it, and it actually makes for um, it, a really healthy and trusting relationship to develop between parent and child as opposed to needing to decide how to align. Because really all you're aligning with is your your kid being healthy and 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 happy. Yeah, I, I say that all the time, just happy and healthy. That's, yep. that's yeah. the goal, however it presents itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, we have a couple more terms that I want to go through. You know, particularly for older kids, um, maybe for younger kids as well. They've been thinking about this for a while, probably <laughs> before they talk to their parents. Um, they, and I guess I'm thinking about it with older kids because they probably have researched it on the internet. They probably have like a PowerPoint presentation ready of what they want to happen next. Mm. And then the parents are coming at it like, this is the first I'm hearing of this. Yeah. How do I handle this? Do you have any tips for parents on that? Because I'm just thinking about it. It's like, it, it can be overwhelming. And how do you move forward with them, even though they might be already at 60 miles per hour and you're just like putting on your seatbelt? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a parallel process. I mean, the way that parents, I always advise parents to handle it is you're going to have a lot of reactions. You're going to have a lot of emotions. And also those are valid and they have to be tended to separately from you parenting your child. Right. So in those moments where parent and I think parents often feel like I need to know what to say perfectly, but you really don't. You can sort of like zoom out of the conversation and sort of acknowledge that you're having a reaction and you love them and you're you want to hear everything they have to say. And you might need some time to take it in and figure out how to best support them, right? But if you can somehow articulate love, commitment, support, and curiosity, right, as best you can. Like, I'm really curious about their experience as opposed to trying to figure out how to respond. Um, then take some space. As long as that is secure, the relationship is secure, it can hold whatever you got going on. <laughs> Yeah, I like the idea of the curiosity and it's it's like an openness, right? It's like I'm not shutting you down. I'm open to what you're saying and I might not be I might not have all the answers. I might not be responding the way you dreamed I would, but it, it, I think being open and also having a little bit of honesty back like this is new and I'm mm -hmm. I'm I'm learning it. I'm this is all new information for me and I'm I'm here for you, but I'm I'm not where you are yet. I'm still getting there. Right. And, and I want, and I want to be the best parent to you. I can possibly be like, and, and then the, then the next step though, and this is where I think a lot of parents trip up is then you have to do that. Like, it's not just about, I'm getting there. I'm trying. It's about when you're not with your child, learning, educating yourself, practicing. That piece is important. And what do you mean by practicing? So for example, 
if you continue to misgender your child, use the wrong pronoun, or if you continue to use the wrong name, it's not just about like letting time get you there. When your child's not there, practice by like writing a journal entry all about your child using the right name, right? Talk to, have somebody else in your family that you practice getting the name right with, right? It's not about just, oh, I'll get there at some point. No, you have to actually do the work. Or if you're just learning, it's not about like waiting for your child to teach you through how they feel and what they need you to know about them. It's about pivoting when they're not there and reading a book, watching a documentary, immersing yourself in some sort of advocacy group, getting to know what it feels like and what what's helpful for trans kids. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I like the practicing idea. It reminds me of when I started studying a language and I kept coming to class and I said to one of the my co-students, I said, everyone's so good. Mm. And she said, oh, well, are you practicing during the week? And I was like, oh, no. yeah, exactly. No, yeah. I just show up to class. <laughs> I was like, it's also really important because it's a neurobiological process that has to take place. Like you have to, there's new neural pathways that have to form and they form well and more quickly when you practice. <laughs> right. Like if you put the work in, things happen faster, deeper, better. Right. And it was, I mean, I know that, but I was still sort of expecting it to magically occur. And mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think that's a good thing for parents too, to, to think about like, we, we do have to put in the effort for our children and it's not enough just to say, I support you. We have right. to do some, some things there too. Right. Because we didn't learn any of this, you know, like I think when I think back to my experience in school, like I never was taught anything about, I mean, I went to grad school and I learned a lot there. Right. But, but like I, we're, we, uh, like parents now are still in a, in a age demographic that it was, you know, not learned. There was not gender studies. There was not a curriculum. There was not, I am jazz when we were young, you know, not at all. Not yeah. at all. It was, it would be like women's studies if there was gender studies and it right. was much more feminism versus, right. you know, gender identity, which are very, very different things. Mm -hmm. This is, this is absolutely fantastic. Okay. I'm loving this. <laughs> um, so some of the, the last few ones I want to talk about and these kind of crossover into the, are used across the whole LGBTQ community, um, passing, stealth and out. Yeah. So what are these terms mean and why might somebody want to be stealth versus out or et cetera? Yeah. So passing refers to gender attribution, right? When when somebody is read by people outside of themselves as the gender, as their as their gender that they identify with inside, right? Um, it can be really uncomfortable for trans folks to be um, misgendered, right? So somebody uses the wrong pronoun to refer to them or uh, uses the wrong name to refer to them. And so for, for some folks, passing is, is really important. Passing, I also want to say is a really fraught term, right? So, um, you know, I think we're trying to, as a whole, break down this gender binary. And so this, the effort to pass while it's understandable for sure, it's sh people shouldn't have to, you know? And so I think it's, it's important to just kind of point out that, it, you know, to be able to pass definitely makes a person's life potentially more comfortable. Um, we shouldn't be putting that kind of pressure on anybody. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. Um, and then so stealth. So stealth is um, 
somebody who is identifies as who is transgender and who does not disclose that to people. Um, there are a lot of folks that prefer to remain stealth and there's lots of reasons for that. Sometimes it's safety. Sometimes, I mean, for kids, sometimes it's just to ensure a more conventional childhood to not really have to, um, explain that part of themselves all the time. Um, what I would suggest for folks who are stealth is that there's always somewhere that they can go to share a similar lived experience with other folks that, you know, um, where they can see a reflection of the, a positive reflection of themselves and other people with similar experiences, because it's okay if it's a choice, but we don't want anybody hiding, you know what I mean? Because they are ashamed or they've internalized um, some of the stigma or transphobia that exists today. So that's stealth. And you asked me one more, I don't remember the other one. Out. Out. So out means that you're disclosing your identity to folks. And so some people will be out in some contexts and not out in others. And that's common for kids as they start to come to identify as trans, right? So sometimes it can be comfortable uh, in certain contexts, like at home or with certain family, or maybe not with certain, maybe, maybe the opposite, maybe only at school. Um, but sometimes, uh, so sometimes people are out based on context and sometimes people are out completely and sometimes people are not out at all. Right. Which is pretty common, I think, as well. Just mixing uh -huh. it up. But whatever makes sense, right, for your life. You know, you think of it some, in, in this world, like it's 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 essential sometimes that, you know, for safety reasons, maybe you can't be out at work because you've got a transphobic boss or, you know, it's it puts your um, your professional security, like your job security in jeopardy. But when you come home, you have a really affirming place or maybe you have uh, this is where like queer spaces are really important, safe spaces where you can go and really be your true self and sort of, um, and, you know, you let your shoulders, shoulders down a bit and let your hypervigilance fall a bit and, and breathe easy. You know, I think we all need that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Two, two ones that are more on the negative side. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned one already, misgendering, and then the concept of a dead name or dead naming someone. Mm-hmm. So misgendering is referring to someone using the wrong gender pronouns um, and that not only pronouns, right? So maybe you have a child who was assigned female at birth and is uh, transitioning and you still refer to them as your daughter, right? Or maybe it's an honorific, like you use Mr. instead of Mrs. There's lots of ways you can misgender somebody, but it's, it's, it, it's sometimes unintentional, right? And I think we have to, um, you know, neurobiologically, we have to give people time to change their default settings, <laughs> right? But that said, it's on us to do the work to make that happen, right? So if we are constantly misgendering somebody, even if it's our kid, we have work to do, you know? I mean, it's it's acceptable that for there to be a slip up every now and then, but if that's happening more often than not, then we need to practice, maybe have a conversation with a loved one and intentionally use the right pronoun just to kind of reinforce that in your brain. Maybe you write a, like I have a, um, a workbook that I use with parents and I'll often ask them, like, I want you to write a letter telling me all about your kid using the right pronoun. So you're starting to get your, you're training new neural pathways in your brain so that you start to default to a more affirming way of being. Um, so that's misgendering. Misgendering is really painful for people. Um, and so if you do misgender somebody, what I would say is, is apologize, 
uh, correct yourself and then move on, right? You don't want to apologize profusely, maybe one sorry, if anything, or just correct yourself and move on. Um, but the more you uh, take up space in your, your um, regret, the more uncomfortable it's going to be for that person. So it's really good to just kind of acknowledge, correct, and move on. Same thing with dead naming. So dead naming is when you're calling a trans person by their birth name as opposed to their chosen name. So a lot of trans folks won't even tell people what their dead name was. Um, but for folks who transition in relationship with, who, you know, they're in relationship with someone who's seen them through their whole transition, it can be really harmful and invalidating to use a person's dead name, usually the name given at birth, as opposed to the name that affirms the identity that they, their gender identity now. Um, it also puts trans people at risk for harassment and violence and discrimination um, by dead naming somebody in front of other people or by misgendering somebody in front of other people, you're essentially outing that person. So you have to be really mindful um, for, of using the right name and pronoun whenever possible. Yeah, and I have one last last one that I we didn't mention, but it you just Wait, said about say oh. one more thing about that though when you when you when you name somebody correctly or use the right pronoun, it also could create an experience of gender euphoria. So, so um, you know, just to give a little bit more weight to the effort uh, of of getting the pronouns right and the names right, it can actually be really really affirming and good for your child's mental health. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask about, you mentioned outing someone, which is different than we, the out we had talked about earlier. But let's talk about what outing someone means. Yeah, this is important for parents too. So if a child comes out to you, that's wonderful, right? But that doesn't mean you get to tell people without their consent, right? So if someone, if a child comes out to you, great. Uh, if you feel like other people need to know, it's important for you to check with your child first to see if that's okay. Otherwise, you're when you out somebody without talking to them first, that's called outing somebody. That's something you're doing without someone's consent, and that's really personal and private information, and puts some makes somebody vulnerable um, to all sorts of opinions and intrusive questions, and you know, some not so great stuff sometimes. And it can be a little tricky for parents because sometimes you are in a situation where you kind of have to out your kids, maybe to the school, you might have to tell certain people about it. But when you have in a situation like that, at least my experience has been, I try to put very tight boundaries on it as to who knows. I know who knows, and I know that they're trusted people. There are some situations where you do have to tell people like yeah. your pediatrician, maybe. Right. Right. You know, they're they're going to know they're going to, but you want to make sure that it's a safe, a safe situation. That's no, that's a really good point and a good correction because there are, you know, what I'm talking about is sort of this cavalier, oh, guess what so-and-so told me, you know, this is what's happening. Almost like, you know, how you get that letter at the holidays of what's going on with everybody. Like you don't want to put it in the letter. Without I've, your I've, seen, I've seen it on Facebook. So I understand completely what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there are, so for real little, little kids, I mean, that's going to, it's important for, you know, if, if they're, if you've got a five or six year old going to camp and they're going to be swimming, like it's probably important for there to be at least one person that knows what's going on just for safety reasons. Um, and, you know, the way that I usually frame that for families is you want your kid to know who's on their team. Right. And that's, that's sort of how I frame it is like, who's on their team. The school nurse is on your team. The, um, Maybe one of the teachers is on your team at school. This is the counselor that's on our team. Like, you know, so you create sort of a team of people 
that know what's going on. So if God forbid anything were to happen, your child knows who to go to and that person likely that's on your team knows how to address it. That's a great strategy. I like that a lot. And that leads me to our last term. So we're going to end on something positive. Let's talk about allies and allyship. Who's an ally? How do you be an ally? What does this mean? You know, so something that happens when parents, uh, when kids come out as trans is parents take on so many different roles because they have to in this world. Um, They become an educator for their family members or for, you know, whatever system their child's engaged with, healthcare, schools, camps, sports teams. And, you know, so allyship is essentially showing up and advocating for trans and gender diverse youth. Um, whether that be your child or somebody else. And we need allyship now more than ever, right? And so what that means is you're showing up interpersonally if you're hearing somebody say something that might be transphobic or might not be serving to your child. It means that showing up systemically, you go to a doctor's office or a dentist's office and they give two options for gender. Might be a good idea to be like, hey, that's not an exhaustive list, you know? Um, So it's really putting yourself, it's, it's allowing yourself to stand arm in arm with, trans folks, your child maybe, or other trans folks, so that they're not having to bear the weight of doing it all on their own. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's essentially allyship. There was something else I was going to say, but I've reached the age where things come in and out. So if I remember, I'll let you know. But that's I'm, essentially allyship, yeah. I, I'm there as well. And who <laughs> could be an ally? Do you have to be a parent of a trans child to be an ally? Absolutely not. No, we need... And... and uh, allyship means educating yourself, right? So it's not just about showing up and saying that I stand with trans folks. It's understanding what trans folks need from you. Oh, I know. I remember. I just remembered what I was going to say. Okay. So when I was, I'm going to date myself, but when I was a kid in elementary school, we used to play this game called Red Rover. I don't know if you remember it, but you'd, you'd stand in two lines with your friends and you'd be arm in arm and you'd ask one person from the opposite line to run and try and break through your line. And if they broke through your line, I don't know what happened, but you win something. Um, But I love that. That's what I think of when I think of allyship, right? Because when I was a kid, I was always a tiny little kid. And there was this, my friend of mine named Scott, who was always bigger than me. And he'd be like, come on, Laura, I got you. Right. And he would put his arm in arm with mine because otherwise people would always come to me to break through the line because I was sort of the weak link. And I think of allyship that way because there are going to be, you know, trans folks, gender diverse folks are, are navigating so much right now. Um, And we, those of us who aren't navigating the similar stresses, we need to link up arm in arm with, with folks who are more, more vulnerable because now more than ever, there's so much coming at us that we need to hold the line and make sure that gender affirming care remains available, that schools are teaching about trans folks. I mean, these book bans are happening, right? Like where you, wherever you can show up to maintain visibility, to decrease stigma, to uh, reinforce the need for healthcare and safe communities, wherever you can do that, um, it only creates a more just world, not just for trans folks, but for all people, right? All people that might be unique in some way. Um, So yeah, you can be an ally, whether you're a parent, whether you're a neighbor, whether you're just a good human, um, and not only can you, but I, I would invite you to do so. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you. That brings us to the end of our our fairly comprehensive glossary, Laura. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this.
You're very welcome. And uh, whatever you need in the future, please reach out. I'd be happy to support in whatever way I can. And I'm open to feedback if I got anything wrong, for sure. I mean, I okay, certainly- yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll probably circle back, you know, I don't know, six months, 12 months and do an, an update because things will have changed. I'm sure. Is, is there anything you'd like to tell our listeners? Where can they find you? Um, tell us a little bit more about your resources. Sure. Yeah. So um, the practice, my practice is called uh, Spectrum Health and Wellness in Montclair, New Jersey. And yeah, we're, I'm, I'm now in the process of creating a lot of resources to help um, guide folks to supporting and advocating for trans folks. So I have uh, a resource for grandparents. I'm creating a resource for parents. I've got, um, oh, for people who are facilitating support groups, there's a guide for that. Um, just trying to put out as much information as possible. So if anyone needs anything, definitely reach out. Wonderful. And I will include the URL for your site on our show notes as well. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for doing this. Okay. okay. Thank you. And remember, we'd love to hear from you too. You can leave a message for us on our website, tertiumquidtalks.com. Just click the Talk to Us button, and you'll be able to leave us a voice message. Tertium Quid Talks is produced by Cold Cuts Media, with production done by friggin' fabulous productions. Mm -hmm.